Okay, so let's see what the DeMond brothers have to say about the Roman Catholic doctrine on purgatory. And let's see how this reflects their worldview, so to speak. The Bible teaches purgatory. There is proof for purgatory in the Bible. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. Let's examine this biblical proof for purgatory. I will use the 1611 King James Version of the Bible, a famous Protestant translation. Okay, before we read, 1 Corinthians 3.15, I want you to ask yourself, will this verse say, there is an otherworldly place called purgatory in which souls who are slated for salvation shall undergo a painful purification process before they enter into heaven. Is there anything like that in this verse? Is there anything like that in any verse of Holy Scripture? The answer is going to be no. Not at all. Not one little bit. But... When you are the DeMond brothers, logic is your way of being able to justify your belief in anything. So let's read the passage they present from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Huh. So according to them, the underlined section, he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire, automatically means there is an otherworldly place called purgatory in which souls are painfully tormented and purged of their sinful attitudes, habits, and ways uh, on account of their venial sins before they enter into the halls of glory that is heaven. According to them, you get all of that from that last verse right there. Now, we could chalk this up to the standard demand of brothers, bad hermeneutics, deceitful hermeneutics even. But, methinks that they are not going to go down the uh, route of, hey, let's hide things from our readers, as they did in the justification chapter where they just willy-nilly skipped verses that demonstrated that they were wrong. <laughs> oh no. When we read that last part, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. There are a lot of different ways you can read this, and none of them require you to believe in purgatory. It is not, as the headline says, irrefutable proof for purgatory. But let's see what they say about it. Now let's look at the last part of this passage again. In 1 Corinthians 3.15 we see, 
If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So we have a man whose works have been judged. His works are in fact burned, and he suffers loss, yet he is saved, but by fire. He suffers loss, but is saved by fire. Now, of course, I'm sure they're Greek scholars, or at least they would like you to think that they are. So, they would understand that many modern translations of 1 Corinthians 3.15 will say, through fire, not by fire. Strong's number 1223, dia, it's a preposition. It can mean because of or on account of. It can also mean through, through something. You can successfully cross to the other side of something through it. Now, why is that important? Because if you are doing a Bible translation and you understand the consistency of the biblical text, you are not going to say that you are saved by fire. You are going to say, hmm, you'll probably be saved through fire, as in there is an experience akin to fire, because St. Paul here is talking about works being burned up, that is clearly metaphorical because me swinging my hand cannot be burned up at the last judgment. A white lie that you tell is not suddenly a material substance that is burned. Correct? Correct. Therefore, as St. Paul speaks metaphorically, he is saying that this is a through fair experience a through this, experiencing this before your final end state of salvation, that you will go through. This is why us Lutherans will tell you, well, passages like this are part of our belief that this life is the closest thing to purgatory you're ever going to get. But they, being Greek scholars, of course, are going to say, oh, no, no, no. It is the fire that saves you. You're saved by fire. Let's keep reading what they're saying. What does suffer loss mean in this passage? The Greek word which is translated as suffer loss is zemiathesitai. It comes from the Greek word zemioa. Forms of this same Greek word which is translated as suffer loss in 1 Corinthians 3.15 are found in other passages in the Bible. The word is used to mean punishment. In Exodus 21-22, Proverbs 17-26, Proverbs 19-19 and elsewhere, this very Greek word is used to mean punishment. That means that zemiothesitai, the word translated as suffer loss in 1 Corinthians 3.15, can mean punishment. Before we move on to their little proof of purgatory. Zemioa comes from the cognate Zemia, which is Strong's number 2209. You can look it up, which means damage, loss, and detriment. When they point to the Septuagint using terms like punishment or using this a particular word, Zemiao, what is likely happening is the translators of the Septuagint 
used the closest Greek word that they could find at the time for punishment. Because zemia literally means to damage, to deprive. The, the word zemao, zemao, is something that can be used for leveling a fine on somebody. That's where the loss part comes in. It's also why St. Paul says that to suffer loss is gain in the book of Philippians. Right? So, the passage is not distinctly, exclusively saying punishment. Hence the fact that the King James translators did not say, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall be punished. They do not say that, because they understand that that is not what is being talked about here, especially in the context of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, in which St. Paul is saying, a man building on a foundation of gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Your works ultimately are going to go through the fires, trials, and tribulations. Now guess what? That is consistent with James chapter 1. That is consistent with Hebrews chapter 12. That Christians go through trials in this life. And that which is worthless in our life, our works, our character flaws, are burned away by that. It is part of the theology of the cross. We go through that as a cycle. But they want to proof text using a single Greek word and the Septuagint. Because ultimately what matters to them is that they can logic their way into their position. Now, of course, I know I've been spending a lot of time on a little bit of stuff here, but this kind of thing is important. If you're not doing your cross-references, if you're not actually studying the broad understanding and meaning and ancient uses of a certain term, don't make a theological argument with it. Now, because they're willing to look up the Greek word, I could either conclude that these are lazy men, men who were just looking at the closest thing that could possibly confirm their biases, or I could conclude that they are deceitful men, men who really knew that what they're saying is wrong, and they knew that the cross-references in Scripture referring to the same phenomena do not lend support to the doctrine of purgatory, according to the Roman Catholic Magisterium. But whichever one is correct here, whether they are being dumb or being liars, they are wrong. But let's see how they continue uh, smarty-pantsing their way into a false doctrine. So the man who suffers loss and is saved by fire can mean a man who is punished and is saved by fire. Doesn't that sound just like purgatory? Yes, it sounds exactly like purgatory because that's what it refers to. But there is more from the context to demonstrate the point. Who is this man and why is he suffering loss or punishment and being saved by fire? No, it doesn't sound like purgatory, and it doesn't sound like being saved by fire. St. Paul is using metaphorical language. 
And if he is using metaphorical language, maybe I should understand what he's saying to be in a metaphorical fashion. The context of 1 Corinthians 3 deals with the members of the Church of Christ. It deals with Corinthian Christian believers. 1 Corinthians 3.3 tells us that some of these Corinthian Christians were falling into sinful imperfections and offenses against God. Some of these bad works or sins are identified in 1 Corinthians 3.3 as strife, divisions, and envying. Okay. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So the context of 1 Corinthians 3 deals with the different kinds of works of believers. Some of them are not so good. These different kinds of works, good and bad, are described in 1 Corinthians 3.12. Any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, etc. and so forth. Of course, they're only pretending to have good faith here when they talk about context, right? Because here, here it is from 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and onward, right? For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned it to each. And he continues talking about Apollos and Paul, missionaries, evangelists, with the Corinthian church's problem of factionalism according to teachers. Hmm. Now why would they skip that? Because if they skip that, they can tell you this verse here is the context of human works, and therefore the rest of this means human works. Maybe what St. Paul is getting at, and this is what I would say, is that hoarding teachers for yourself and holding to these doctrines that build upon the foundation of Christ himself, remember, Christ is the foundation of the Christian faith, from 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, all these extra doctrines, all these extra opinions from these teachers, if they are bad, they will not survive persecution. They will not help you when you go through trials and tribulations, but those good teachings, those good opinions, the things which you should be holding to faith in, will help you see it through by faith and steadfastness. Now, there could be an element of works there. After all, we do, all of us, build up the church in our own way through good works. And sometimes we uh, put something in the church that shouldn't be there. Something like stubble that is easily burned away when those tribulations come. But that's a lot more of context in it than what the DeMond brothers want to give you. They want to see, ah, that's a bad thing, therefore that's works. There you go. I'm, I'm going to ignore the rest of the context and, and connect a verse that's nine verses away from the other verse so that I can logic my way into this. They have an argument. Now they're searching for the evidence to prove it. <laughs> there are good works which are called gold, silver, and precious stones. 
These signify a better or more perfect adherence to the gospel of Christ. Better or more perfect adherence to the gospel of Christ? Hmm. Well, you call that a good work. Now, the gospel is about what Jesus did for you, not what you do for Jesus. The gospel means good news, not good to-do list. The good news is Jesus Christ having died for sinners and risen on the third day for their justification. Whoever believes in him and is baptized shall be saved. That is good news. So either they are saying in this book here that uh, <clears throat> the Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church, this book, either they are saying that your faith is adherence to the gospel of Christ which results in good works called gold, silver, and precious stones, which I wouldn't have a problem with, especially if we are adding the contextual part of doctrine and the things that people are teaching us from the foundation that is Christ Jesus in this faith. Well, if they're saying that, then they're, they're pretty Protestant. So they're probably not. They're probably saying that the gospel is a beautiful to-do list in which Christ is our down payment on earning heaven. I continue. Then there are other works which are not so good. These bad works or sins included unnecessary quarreling, strife, jealousy, and divisions as mentioned above. These are described as wood, hay, and stubble. These are the works that are burned in 1 Corinthians 3.15, for which the man suffers loss or punishment, but he is saved, yet so as by fire. Hmm. Are the Demond brothers saying that the only sins that get you into purgatory are quarreling, strife, jealousy, and divisions? Because that's what St. Paul lists. Now they say <laughs> included, because they want to expand it. They want to say, oh yeah, it includes quarreling and strife and stuff. But also, if you didn't uh, say exactly X number of Hail Marys every day, that'll land you more time in purgatory. But, they continue, This context fits perfectly with the Catholic teaching on purgatory. Yes, the context he made up fits perfectly with the Catholic teaching on purgatory. Not a good look, Peter. The Catholic Council of Lions, too, defined purgatory this way. From... Pope Gregory X, Council of Lions 2, 1274. Because if they die truly repentant in charity, before they have made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins committed and omitted, their souls are cleansed after death for purgatorial or purifying punishments. <sighs> Purgatory is not for those who have died in the state of serious i.e. mortal sin. All such persons go to hell, as is made clear in Galatians 5, 19-21, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and Ephesians 5, 5-8. Purgatory is for those of the true faith who have been forgiven for their sins, but have yet to make full satisfaction for the sins they have committed. More on this below. Okay, they should worry if that's the case, because they're adding a whole lot to the Bible through this context magic that they're doing, through the logical magic that they're trying to pull, through their addition of tradition into the doctrines of God, because those curses at the end of Revelation 
are no joke, and they're clearly ignoring them with their willingness to add and remove stuff all willy-nilly. Just saying. But remember, these guys are logical thinkers, not biblical thinkers. They don't care what the Bible says. They care what they can try to use from the Bible to add to their logic trees of doctrine. Case in point. Therefore. <laughs> therefore. Oh, yeah. Therefore. In 1 Corinthians 3.12, the wood, hay, and stubble which are burned signify the works of a man who has died in the state of justification and has been forgiven of any mortal sins he might have committed. He is therefore eventually saved, but he hasn't made satisfaction for sins committed after baptism. Mm. So question for the DeMond brothers. I doubt that they'll ever respond because uh, they'd probably just get mad. Maybe they'll yell about me at some point. Who cares? Question for them. How do you know that all of your mortal sins have been forgiven? And how do you know that you've done the whole uh, rigmarole of penance for them according to the strictures of the Roman Catholic Church that you are not members of? How do you know that there is something in your life that was all the way addressed? Every last single itty-bitty little sin. That it's all been forgiven and uh, quote-unquote satisfaction has been made because i love that jesus never made satisfaction for all your sins uh-uh he's not the propitiation the hilasterion of holy scripture of the apostles and all of the prophets no 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 see that's that's something like down payment you have to make satisfaction jesus didn't according to these guys um that's not biblical Anyway, the case of David, they say, is an example of a man who's been forgiven his sin but hasn't made full satisfaction for it. Uh, we all understand from 2 Samuel, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, then has Bathsheba's husband murdered at the battlefield, and then, while this should have, according to the Mosaic Law, resulted in King David being executed... It does not. To the contrary, uh, David and his line are cursed, right? The child that is born first to Bathsheba dies, and then uh, there is conflict and chaos in King David's house, uh, basically until Christ returns. <clears throat> this provides undeniable proof that the guilt of a sin of a believer can be forgiven without the entire punishment being taken away. The Council of Trent put it this way. Pope Julius III, Council of Trent on the Sacrament of Penance. It is absolutely false and contrary to the word of God that the guilt of a sin is never forgiven by the Lord, without the entire punishment also being remitted. For clear and illustrious examples are found in the sacred writings. Yeah, see, um, when we talk about punishment, you do realize that believers are disciplined to make them better. In King David's case, there is severe disciplining, and I would call it punishment, consequences for his dire sins, especially on account of the fact that he was not executed. 
Many people have died for far less according to Mosaic law, yet God had made a promise to King David that he would never lack a man to succeed him on the throne, and that requires having offspring. Therefore, while the punishment would be death, there must be another to take his punishment, somebody who has no sin, or at least could not be accused of having committed any mortal sin whatsoever, and that was that baby. It is incredibly tragic. And then King David, of course, was purged and disciplined by the strife that followed thereafter. Uh, the debacle of Amnon and Tamar, the rebellion of Absalom, so on and so forth. That does not prove purgatory. Because after you die, it's first comes death, then comes the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 not death, then purgation, and then you're finally declared innocent enough to get to heaven. And every single text regarding what happens when we die in the New Testament refers to going to the throne of God. And for those who do not belong to Christ, of course, there is Hades and eventually the Lake of Fire, not purgatory. Purgatory is never mentioned by name in Holy Scripture. They are trying to build this with logic and cherry-picked verses, half of which are misunderstood. Continuing on, however, In this citation from the Council of Trent, we see references to numerous places in Scripture where a sin is forgiven without the entire punishment also being remitted. The examples of Numbers 20 should be quoted. Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Wow, they are definitely missing the typological reasons behind that, which would have led to Moses and Aaron not going to the promised land, whether they had struck the rock unworthily or not. Moses, representative of the law, does not bring you into the promised land. Aaron, representative of the priesthood and external persons who may or may not be praying for you, they are not the ones getting you into the promised land. Joshua, however, whose name in the Hebrew is translated to Greek as Jesus, literally the Septuagint, the book of Joshua is the book of Jesus, he does get you into the promised land despite your unworthiness. Hmm, that's a really big important part of the Old Testament, of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. The law and the priesthood shall not save you and get you to heaven. Jesus well, if you ever look up the marching orders, by the way, of all of Israel during this time and how they were marching, it was in the shape of a cross. Just a fun fact. I think it's really, really cool. Anyway, I can absolutely say that Moses and Aaron, having been arrogant and not giving full glory to God in that instance, was meriting the discipline of not being permitted to go into the promised land. They wanted to see themselves as the leaders of these people who were doomed to die in the desert on account of their rebellion. Well, that's exactly what they got. However, Moses was still saved, and there is no record of him having gone to purgatory. But now we get to 
Peter Demond's actual substantive argument in which he says nothing impure shall enter heaven. This kind of satisfaction for the remaining punishment due to forgiven sins is often done on earth by good works and prayers, by suffering trials and tribulations, and by a more perfect adherence to the true faith. If such satisfaction is not done on earth, it is and must be done in purgatory, assuming that the person dies in the state of grace, justification. The satisfaction must be done because the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, makes it clear that nothing impure shall enter heaven. Revelation 21:27. There shall not enter into it anything defiled, or that worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the book of life of the Lamb. We see the same thing in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12:14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hmm. Okay. Can a human being purify himself in the eyes of God through his works? No. Scripture attests that your works are as filthy rags before God. Next. Okay, not just next. There's more. God is the purifier. How does he purify us? By getting rid of that which defiles, namely the old Adam. This is why Christians, though they be believers, must still shed their mortal coil and die. According to the flesh, you're still alive in Christ. The thing that would bring impurity to God's quarters, which he would not tolerate, is safely buried six feet under. Again, the life and death of a Christian is purgatory. That might sound unfair to people like Peter DeMond, who is all about doing all these great works and sufferings and self-flagellation and him hearing that some guy out there could be a biker that becomes a Christian at 65 years old and starts to clean up his life but dies five years later, both of you end up in the throne room of heaven, provided Peter DeMond ends up there, He's going to say that's just unfair without that man suffering a whole lot and being punished for all that nasty stuff he did that I didn't do because I'm a good person that worked really hard at being super holy. I know that sounds unfair, but have you considered the parable of the prodigal son? Have you considered the parable of the employer where some men are working for many parts of the day and then a few people show up at the last hour and each of them gets the same denarius? Yes, all of them are given salvation freely by the God that saves us without him necessarily inflicting suffering on people that die without quote-unquote satisfaction and consequences given to them. That's just a fact. Now, of course, you still want to seek holiness and you still want to do good works. There are promised rewards in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth for those that lived this life for Christ, for those that put in that effort and did their best. So God makes it work out in the end without necessarily having to tell people, Jesus didn't really pay for all of your sins before God. Um, so you gotta burn for a few millennia, okay? Yeah, it doesn't work like that. But they want it to work like that. So, they do what they're really good at, taking a few verses and using a whole lot of logic, human reason, 
to try to make Christianity say something that the Bible doesn't say. But I digress. The Bible teaches that there are mortal sins and lesser venial sins. Mortal sins destroy the state of justification. That's why Galatians 5, 19 through 21, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and Ephesians 5, 5 through 8 teach that people who commit such mortal sins lose their inheritance in heaven, justification. Oh boy, I wonder if they go through the Lutheran definition of mortal sin, a sin that is not repented of, impenitent sin, not living with a penitent heart. If you're doubting it, you're correct. Examples of mortal sins are fornication, murder, drunkenness, lying, cheating, stealing, fraud, theft, masturbation, looking at pornography, giving full consent to impure thoughts, homosexuality, heresy, idolatry, violating the commandments, etc., if people die in the state of mortal sin, they will be damned. 1 John 5.16 distinguishes between sins which lead to death and sins which don't. If any man see his brother a sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Real quick, let's go over that list again. Examples of mortal sins, according to the DeMond brothers, are fornication, murder, drunkenness, lying, cheating, stealing, fraud, theft, masturbation, looking at pornography, giving full consent to impure thoughts, homosexuality, heresy, idolatry, violating the commandments, etc. Violating the commandments. At all. So, according to the DeMond brothers, your salvation depends on luck. It really does, according to the DeMond brothers. Whether or not you are saved depends on whether you were able to get to the confessional on time and do your penance to receive your absolution on time and you didn't die before that happened. Otherwise, you're hosed. So you better hope you're fortunate enough to be able to confess all those sins. Because clearly, what Jesus died for was for you to look at a massive list, and by all means, the list of actual mortal sins that the Roman Catholic Church can put out, it is massive. Not only is it massive, it is also expansive. So one of the listed mortal sins in the Roman Catholic Church's understanding of it is scandal. Really, just scandal, having scandalous behavior and or thoughts, which you can't even define. And we talked about masturbation in a previous episode because the DeMond brothers are apparently really hung up on the whole pulling the pud thing. Um, according to them, if somebody hits puberty and doesn't know any better and they, they masturbate and they uh, eventually find out that it was wrong but they haven't confessed it yet and they die, they're just going to hell because they weren't lucky enough. Jesus, according to the DeMond brothers, died so that you could maybe go to heaven if you're lucky so you better hope you made as many pit stops to the casino i mean church as you could to even up your chances but by the way in spite of you going to the casino i mean church enough times you're probably also going to do some time in divine prison getting burned 
because that's what Jesus is all about. That's the gospel. Be lucky and face to fire for potentially thousands of years. Who knows? And in case anybody thinks that I'm being too harsh on the Roman Catholic system of penance, oh, they would say the same thing. Brother Damon writes, Mortal sin can be forgiven only by confession to a valid priest, as proven from John 20:23. 20, it can also be forgiven by perfect contrition with the intention to go to confession. Well, first off, beside the fact that John 20:23 20, does not teach that, perfect intention, perfect contrition with the intent to go to confession, like what does that even mean? You have to make yourself feel really, really, really bad about things you're not sure whether you even did. Because God knows we sin enough times, all of us, all of humanity, to where it's really stinking hard to even keep track of it. And so much of it falls under the umbrella of mortal sin that you're hosed, you're not going to heaven unless you win the jackpot. And then you're still going to do some time. This is an attempt to destroy Christianity using logic. This is an attempt to say, aha, I have a verse, I have C verse, and I can make a syllogism to create a perfect little equation that demonstrates a doctrine that I believed in in the first place. The rest of their so-called proofs for purgatory match that same idea. I am going to formulate a logic tree that justifies a doctrine that I already believed in order to warp and mangle the Christian faith. That Jesus died so that you could pull that slot machine until maybe you got the jackpot. That's what these guys are doing, and they know that that is what they are doing. Their proofs include Matthew 5.25 regarding... Uh, Agree with thy adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. You see that Jesus tells the parable of the man who for his faults is cast into prison until he pays up or satisfies for his debt. That's exactly like purgatory. Well, it's not a parable. It's Christ saying, do this with somebody that's got a big bone to pick with you so that you can make peace and not suffer on account of your unwillingness to make peace. It's not talking about purgatory. It's not picturing it. Matthew 12.32 is also very relevant to this issue. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Why would Jesus say that the sin against the Holy Ghost will not be forgiven in this world or in the world to come? Because whatever is bound in heaven is bound on earth. Whatever is loosed in heaven is loosed on earth. It is present time. The to come thing, the world to come, does not mean that it is a future forgiveness of a sin that is to be forgiven later. It is a sin that is forgiven when it is forgiven here on earth. It is in heaven, thus it is on earth, and vice versa, according to the Office of the Keys. But they, uh, they go with Gregory the Great talking about purgatory. Well, that's not the Bible in a book called The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church. 
But then they bring up uh, John 15, 2 and 1 Peter 1, 7. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. That is pruning, not purging. Of course, there's going to be translation issues there, but you prune a plant so that it grows more. Right? That's something God does in this world in sanctification, which Christ is talking about. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What? Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, Christ is talking about temptations and trials in this life that you get through with faith. As St. James teaches in James 1, as Hebrews teaches in Hebrews 12, he's not saying that it means purgatory. Uh, but then they keep going, you see. They want to bring up Colossians 1 verse 24. And I love that they increase the uh, the text font size here for Colossians 1.24, which they think is this slam dunk case. Where St. Paul writes, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up those things that are wanting of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church. This verse might seem a shock to some who are not familiar with it. Paul says that he fills up for the church those things that are wanting or lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Christ's suffering was perfect and of infinite value, so what does this mean? What St. Paul means is that many sufferings are still wanting and needed for the members of the church to work out their salvation, which was all made possible by Christ's sacrifice. This verse proves that Christ's sacrifice doesn't do away with all worries about the f possibility of future punishment due to one's sins. If so, then Paul would never say that his suffering fill up for the members of the church that which is wanting in the sacrifice of Christ, nor would Jesus speak of the punishments for sins which he repeatedly does. This verse, Colossians 1.24, also proves the doctrine of the communion of saints and the effect of intercessory prayer and sacrifice. No, it doesn't. Colossians 1 verse 24, in speaking of something lacking or wanting in the sufferings of Christ, it is the suffering that you and I go through to further bring us closer to the imitation of Christ. We are made closer to him through our suffering in this life. And while Christ's sacrifice and his sufferings completely paid for all sins, all sins, like there's no need to believe in purgatory here. We are still made to go through trials because we are being brought closer to the image of Christ. We are told to imitate him. We are told that we are to be closer to him. And St. Paul is rejoicing that such sufferings that he goes through, that all believers go through, are for each other as well, since we are all united to Christ. When you are united to Christ in your baptism, you are not just united to his divine and human nature for the sake of your salvation. You are also united to his sufferings. You are made to sympathize and feel that 
with him, however imperfectly given that we are mere humans. But remember, they're trying to set up the logical casino of salvation, so they respond to um, us Protestants saying, didn't Jesus' sufferings on the cross make up for everything? They, they respond to it with more logic, you see. Really bad logic. Second, the aforementioned Protestant argument is refuted by the following. If it were true that Jesus' sacrifice made up for everything, including the future punishments due to every man's sins, then no one would have to believe or do anything to be saved. Jesus' sacrifice would have paid the price for it all. But even the non-Catholics who argue that Jesus made up for everything admit that not all men are saved. They admit that people must do something to be saved. With such an admission, they contradict themselves and disprove their argument that Christ's suffering took care of everything. Um, no. No, actually, Christ's sufferings did pay for every single sin ever in full. It was a sacrifice of infinite value. Whether or not you receive that forgiveness, whether or not you are justified by faith, makes the difference as to whether or not what he won on the cross applies to you. It's that simple. It is not about doing, it is about receiving. These individuals do not know that we Protestants have actually thought about these questions of theirs. And these dumb little thought exercises that they think totally pwn us with facts and logic or whatever. But I continue. Third, this argument, again, regarding Christ's sufferings being sufficient so as to render purgatory meaningless and unnecessary, is based on a grave misunderstanding of the redemption of Christ. What is the meaning of Jesus Christ's passion and death? Jesus Christ redeemed the world and destroyed men's sins, as the Catholic Council of Florence defined. From Pope Eugene IV and the Council of Florence, and they say this is ex-cathedra, by the way. The Holy Roman Church firmly believes, professes, and teaches that no one conceived of man and woman was ever freed of the domination of the devil, except through the merit of the mediator between God and men, our Lord Jesus Christ. He who was conceived without sin was born and died. Through his death alone laid low the enemy of the human race by destroying our sins and open the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, which the first man by his own sin had lost with all succession. It means every sin that is forgiven is forgiven by Jesus Christ, and specifically by the merit of his passion and death. This forgiveness is granted only to those who follow him and do what he says must be done, which enables them to benefit from his redemption. It does not mean that God will not punish people for future sins, it does not mean that the penalty for all the sins of the whole world has been taken away. <sighs> so now they're arguing basically for limited atonement, right? The atonement is limited to those who purchase it through their penance, their confession, their satisfaction. Where's the forgiveness of that? What was the point of him dying on the cross even? Maybe I should amend the title of this episode from uh, Logical Salvation Casino or something to, like, Logical Salvation Pharmaceutical Scam. 
where you have to keep going to the pharmacy to buy drugs that you don't need or else you're going to die because you're now hopelessly addicted to them. Like that's that's their that's their idea. That's the scam the Demond brothers are running. But now they bring up Second uh, Maccabees twelve forty six. Here's another proof for purgatory. It comes from the Second Book of Maccabees. Some non-Catholics might immediately think that book is not in my Bible. It's true that the books of the Maccabees are not in the Protestant Bible. They're not in the Protestant Bible because Martin Luther, the first Protestant, <laughs> removed them when he split from the Catholic Church. He also added the word alone to Romans 3.28 and criticized other books which were left in the Protestant Bible, such as the book of James. Really? Going over these old things because uh, the DeMond brothers are animated not by trying to prove the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, through scripture, they're trying to pee on Martin Luther, who was right, by the way. Second uh, Maccabees does not belong in the canon of holy scripture. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. I mean, the authors of Maccabees admit there were no prophets in the land, which means it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means it is not Bible. And Luther included it in the Luther Bible as uh, secondary readings that are not inspired, but are still useful for Christians to read. And, uh, of course, they probably don't understand that Luther changed his tune on James and one of his final sermons was on the book of James, wherein he extolled the virtue of James 2.24 with a correct understanding. But, oh well, let's not expect these guys to be smart or honest. The Septuagint. There is something called the Septuagint. And he talks about the Septuagint. Yep. Greek translation of the Old Testament. Here is the interesting part. There are about 350 quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament which has come down to us. Well, about 300 of those quotations are from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. In other words, the New Testament, which even Protestants have, quotes the version of the Old Testament which accepts the Catholic books of the Bible. This means that the New Testament writers accepted the Septuagint version and thus the seven books which the Protestants reject. Not true, they also quote things that are only found in the Masoretic text later on. So it's not just pure nothing but Septuagint, and these dorks would understand that, because being hardcore set of Acontists, they would love, love, love the Vulgate, which does not rely on the Septuagint for its Old Testament translations. And the Council of Trent said that the Vulgate was a 100% faithful translation of Holy Scripture. For crying out loud, do they not know their source material? The Septuagint has a lot of interesting things that I don't have to accept. It has various scribal notes. It has some uh, really weird wordings of things. It has some verses that would make Matthew a liar. When Matthew cites Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. In the Septuagint, it's out of Egypt I called my people. Which one is it? Well, Matthew says it's my son, not my people. Hmm. Maybe I should rely on whatever source Matthew used in that instance to give me the real verse. But they want you to say, oh no, Septuagint, bro. That's it. That's the legit Old Testament. Knowing that not even their own church has believed that for a very, very, very long time. Because they want you to think that 2 Maccabees is Bible. 
Now, 2 Maccabees 1246 says, It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from sins. Well, that doesn't teach purgatory, but they say, This verse teaches purgatory. No, there's a lot of different ways you can spin that. You can pray that God forgave their sins before they were dead in order to save them. Again, these are pre-Christian writings where uh, full understanding of salvation and attainment of heaven are not fully understood, and the writers of Maccabees admit that they are not prophets, so God is not inspiring their writing. So when they say it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins, that does not necessarily mean that these individuals were thinking about purgatory. In fact, I would say that the writer of 2 Maccabees, if he was thinking about purgatory, he would have talked about it more. He really would have. But in spite of the fact that that passage in that verse don't even talk about the topic of purgatory, it's weird that they would just throw something out and expect their readers to totally get it, man. That doesn't keep the DeMond brothers from, again, just being deceitful. That's why this book was removed from the Bible by those who wanted to invent a new version of Christianity, one that is not conformable to tradition or the teaching of the Bible. Really? So they're so desperate to try to claim all of this stuff, that they're going to forget that Luther included books of the Bible that he struggled with at first? In his translation of the Bible, they're going to forget that he put 2 Maccabees in there as a beneficial book to read, though not inspired. They're going to claim that he just removed it because, oh man, he just wanted to quote-unquote invent a new version of Christianity. I get you. I hear you, Mr. DeMond. You just want to lie at this point because you're that desperate. Which is why they also go immediately into church tradition. The fathers of the church believed in purgatory and prayers for the dead. And then they bring up a bunch of quotes from church fathers that maybe sort of kind of sound like maybe they're thinking about purgatory or something. Uh, Augustine has one quote where he talks about purgation by fire. But I got a question for these guys. If purgatory is a thing and prayers for the dead is a thing, why would you pray for the souls in purgatory? After all, it's them receiving the just deserts of their venial sins, right? It would be God's will for them to suffer and suffer and burn and burn, if purgatory is a real thing, for them to enter into the throne room of God, the beautiful place that is heaven, um, traumatized and totally broken or something, and that's what God wants because they were such bad little boys and girls. According to the DeMond brothers, that is meet, right, and just. Why would you pray for that? And if the church fathers really were thinking about purgatory when they talked about prayers for the dead, I would wonder the same thing. Why pray for somebody if that's what that jerk deserves for all of his venial sins, that um, almost all of which probably fall under the umbrella of mortal sin in one way, shape, or form or another? Just wondering out loud. I know I went really long with this one, guys, but I wanted to get through this topic because it perfectly encapsulates uh, doctrine via logic, where what the scriptures actually say doesn't matter. 
but the scriptures being used as a nice little costume over your logic trees and the things you already believed in in the first place. Ah, that's where the Bible comes in for types like this. And then they go about and use it to make Christianity utterly and completely not worth believing. Because again, if it all comes down to luck, if that is it, for every single human being on earth, whether they believe in Jesus or not, if it is all about luck, then we're host. We really are. There is no forgiveness in such a church, and there is no hope for a future, because you really got to hope you're winning the jackpot here. I'm going to reject that as completely unchristian, and I don't care how smart the DeMond brothers are. If you being smart led you to mangle Christianity this badly, then I hope for the sake of your... Immortal soul, Mr. DeMond, that you start getting a lot dumber. Next week, speaking of dumb, we will hear them supposedly slam on Sola Scriptura. Ooh, that'll be a fun one, I guess. Um, I wonder how they're going to use the Bible to disprove Sola Scriptura. Anyway, we'll get to that. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. <laughs>